Let's open your Bibles, if you would. Turn in your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of Mark. We're taking a brief break from the prophet Isaiah this week and looking at Mark. And the last chapter, Mark 16, verses 1 to 13, one of the resurrection accounts in the four Gospels. Mark 16, verses 1 to 13, hear now God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, They saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now when he arose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, They would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking in the country, and they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Before we look at God's word further, let's pray. Our God, we come before you to ask for the presence and the enlightening of your Holy Spirit. We recognize that our eyes are blind and our hearts are hard without you, and so would you open our eyes and our ears that we would hear and see what you have for us, and that you would change us through this word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the different gospels, and in particular, the different resurrection accounts in the gospels, differ from one another, something like military uniforms differ from one another. Now, even if you don't wear a uniform on a normal basis, you've at least seen the different kinds of uniforms. And even in one particular service, there are different uniforms that convey different information, and they complement one another. So, for instance, you have the duty uniform, which is camouflage, and you know, you've got your name, rank, and maybe a couple of skill badges, and there's, there's not as much there because that's what it's, it's made for a particular intent and purpose, and it communicates the information that is needed for that purpose. Likewise, a dress uniform, sorry to point you out, a dress uniform has a little bit more information. You know, it's, it, it has all of the, the, loop, the Fruit Loops and the Bling Bling. The rank is in a little bit of a different place because it's built for a particular purpose and intent. Likewise, the gospel accounts and the resurrection accounts are built, authored by the apostles for a particular purpose to convey a particular message. Well, as we read Mark 16, 1 to 13, 
did what did it strike you that there is so much doubt and unbelief the doubting of the people that are in the witness of the resurrection attitudes that permeate this account are distress and fear and disbelief and mark is recording this because he wants to communicate to his listeners to us that our struggles of faith are real. But just as real as our struggles of faith are, so is the resurrection. And so what I want you to see as we go through this passage today is that the risen Christ is the answer to our struggles of faith because our real struggles need a real resurrection. The risen Christ is the answer to our struggles of faith. And now before we dive deep into the passage, just a quick note. Notice who the first witnesses to the resurrection are. Women. Now, if you were making up a fabricated religion in the first century, you would not want women to be your first witnesses. They were not considered credible. Now, as wrong as that is, that's the fact of the first century. And the the fact of this reality enhances, actually, the reliability of the account. A Jewish a document which contains these words, we wouldn't agree with them, but it shows the thought process of the day. Gamblers with dice, those that lend with interest, slaves, these lower bad people, all testimony that a woman is not fit to give, those are also not fit to give. That's from a Jewish law book of tradition in the time. It's not scriptural, but the fact is women were not considered reliable witnesses. But here they are, the first witnesses of the resurrection. And as counterintuitive as it seemed at the time, we realize now this speaks to the reliability of what is being recorded here. Well, what do these women expect? They have an expectation of death. They go to the tomb and they expect to find a dead body that they're going to anoint. They bought spices so that they can go to the tomb and put spices on the body to aid in its preservation, just taking care of the deceased corpse. But Jesus has been anointed already previously and prophetically. The woman who breaks open the perfume and pours it upon his head, Judas complains and Jesus says, she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Jesus was anointed previously and prophetically, but here they expect to see him dead and they expect to see a stone in front of a door that they have to roll away. And as I read this account, you know, wouldn't you think about this before you leave the house? But, and it it made me chuckle on the inside too, but think about the trauma that these women have gone through. Think about those times whenever you have had some event, some death in your life that racks you and you are just operating mechanically And you go out the door and you start to drive to work. And it's like, oh, I wasn't supposed to drive to work. I'm supposed to go here. Oh, I forgot my wallet or my my purse. I never do that. And you realize it's because you are in distress. You've experienced real traumatic stress. And I think, it's my opinion, but I think that's a window, a a little bit of a window into what these women are dealing with. What the whole group of Jesus' disciples are dealing with is later on in the passage whenever they go to tell him, you know, they're weeping and mourning. They are in a situation 
of trauma, so much so that they left the house without even thinking, oh, we got to have somebody roll away the stone. Who's going to do that for us? Now, the stone itself, you know, I, I think of these big bank vault doors that you see in movies. I actually saw a real one a couple years ago, but, you know, they're huge and round and, you know, it's, it's a foot or a two feet thick. That is the actual size that one of these stones would have been, roughly speaking, and it was rolled in front of the door. And so that stone required multiple men to roll it away. Who's going to roll away the stone? Well, their expectations that they have are countered, aren't they? They, have a, they expect to find a dead body. They expect to have to have a stone be rolled away. But their expectations are countered when they see from a distance in verses 4 and 5 the stone has been rolled away. You know, it, it's so large, Mark makes a point to say it was very large. The stone is so large, they can see from a distance. Oh, the stone's been rolled away. And instead of finding a dead Jesus, they see a young man. And we know from the other gospel accounts, this is an angelic encounter, but Mark subdues the detail a little bit, like subdued badges on a uniform. Mark subdues a little bit and it's a young man sitting there in white robes. There's the hint of the angelic presence. And what is the result of the stone being rolled away and seeing this man? Distress and alarm. They were alarmed in verse 5. You know, I think of this. Imagine if you were driving home and you're about to, let's pretend you have a garage if you don't. You're driving home and you expect to see a closed garage door, but instead of seeing a closed garage door, you see your garage door open with somebody you don't know standing inside. How would that make you feel, right? So in some sense, they rightfully feel alarmed because their expectations have been completely countered. And then he declares the reality to them, the reality of the resurrection. Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. The angel gives them an imperative. Do not be alarmed. He says, you seek Jesus of Nazareth. And it's interesting. The word seek in Mark is used in a negative, pejorative context all the times that it's used. You know, they were seeking a time when they might lay their hands on him. Jesus, Judas is seeking a time when he might betray him. The seeking in Mark carries with it a negative context, and it's a mild rebuke from the angel. You know, you're seeking Jesus, but you're seeking the dead Jesus. He's not here. He is risen. And he declares the reality that he really was crucified. Who was crucified? He really did die. And it's not just any Jesus, it was Jesus, the man of Nazareth. The real God-man died. He's risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. I think of this angel as one of the earliest museum curators. Welcome to the empty tomb. Please come and see the place where they laid him. But the importance isn't the place of the resurrection. It's the person. Jonathan Edwards wrote that this is the place where there was the transition in Jesus' orders of existence. He has gone from humiliation to exaltation 
in this place, and at that epicenter, at this place in history, is the place where we are connected to Christ, where he was raised, so we also will be raised. And there's a real fulfillment of Scripture, a real fulfillment not just of Scripture, but of Jesus' very words that are recorded in Scripture. Go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now there's a a peculiarity here in Mark again that I want you to pay close attention to. In another gospel, the angel says, go tell the disciples. Mark includes the detail, go tell the disciples and Peter that I'm going before you to Galilee. You'll see me there just as I told you. Now, why would that be significant? Why would Mark choose to include and Peter? Remember, Mark is very concerned with showing, with bringing to the forefront, with showing the shiny badge on the uniform, showing the compassion and love of God and of Christ. What was the last conversation that Peter had with Jesus? Even though, right after Jesus said this, after I've been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, even though all may fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. That was their last conversation in person. And the angel says, tell the disciples and Peter. How do you think that made Peter feel, being addressed in particular? Have you ever felt like a screw-up, like me? Have you ever felt like, I've done it again, I've fallen again? God comes to screw-ups like us with compassion. Go tell the disciples and Peter. Are your expectations, like the ladies, like the women who expect to find death, or do you have expectations that are connected to life, to a risen Christ? What might that look like? Well, I was uh, watching Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, about a week ago. Noah Smith is like last second. Hey, they're showing Lord of the Rings in the theater. So sorry you all didn't get the invite, but it was pretty last minute. Uh, So there I am watching the movie, and whether or not you know the story at all, all you need to know is there's two little physically weak halflings in enemy territory likely going to die on a mission that will end in death. Uh, And so at this one particular point in the story, you know, Sam and Frodo are their names. Sam hands Frodo some bread, and Frodo's like, well, hey, what about you? Sam's like, no, uh, I'm not hungry. Well, Frodo knows something's wrong. You're a hobbit. You're always hungry. Come on, Sam. And Sam's like, well, okay, we haven't got that much left. We have, to, we have to save it. I've rationed it. We'll have enough. And Frodo's like, enough for what? And in that enough for what, we're on a journey that if we don't die today, we're surely going to die if we reach the end. Enough for what, Sam? Sam says, the journey home. Sam presumed 
at, at least at that point in the story, he was operating on the presumption, we're going there and back again. This isn't a journey that ends in death. This is a journey that is a there and back again. And so does your view of your life, is this a journey that simply ends in death? Or is it a journey that continues on to a home where you continue to live, even a heavenly home that will be here on this earth? You know, this would have been the inaugural celebration. This would have been the inaugural Lord's Day. We expected Christ to be raised. He is. Let's have a worship service. But that's not the case, is it? How do you handle death in your life when it inevitably comes to pass? When there's the death of a, a beloved brother or sister in the Lord? Do you struggle with depression? Maybe anger with God? Those are the feelings and thoughts that are connected to a dead Christ. Paul tells us that we don't have to grieve as those who have no hope because Christ is risen. So we can handle our situations in which we deal with death completely differently than the world. Speaking of which, I've oft quoted Samuel Rutherford, a Puritan, and he's writing a letter to one of his church members who has lost some children, as you'll hear me read. He says these words, how, and I challenge you with this, how could anyone say something like this other than having an expectation of life connected to a living Christ? Samuel Rutherford writes to Alexander Gordon of Earlston, Thank God that Christ came into your house in your absence and took with him some of your children. He presumed much on your love that you would not be offended if you were not Christ's wheat appointed to be bred in his house, he would not grind you. If you were not wheat appointed to be bred in Christ's house, he would not grind you. Nothing but a hope in the real resurrection of Christ can enable someone to give words like that and for someone to receive words like that. But this not only enables our hope, it also enables our obedience. We see the example in Abraham. God has told him to sacrifice his one and only son Isaac. And the book of Hebrews tells us Abraham presumed God was able to keep his promise because he was going to raise Isaac from the dead, even if he killed him. Abraham's belief in the resurrection enabled his obedience to God. But not just with issues concerning life and death and expectations regarding that, expectations regarding your own sin. Are your expectations regarding your sin connected to a dead Christ or a living Christ? Have you ever thought, well, this is just the sin I'll struggle with till the end of my life. It'll never get better. God will never change my husband. God will never change my wife. It seems like she's going to be the same. God will never change me. God won't change my children. He won't change my parents. Those are expectations. Those are thoughts and words connected to a dead Christ. The Spirit is at work. The same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead is working in you. The belief and thought that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. 
that our sanctification will continue, that God can change the heart of someone that seems so unchangeable because he can raise someone from the dead physically. He can surely raise someone from the dead spiritually. It's all connected to an expectation of a risen Christ who is still at work in our lives. And so you can pray with that dependence. Lord, would you change them, please? Because I know you can. I know you can raise them. But you don't get to just pray for someone else. You do need to pray for yourself as well. Don't just change them. Change me. I know you can change me. You can have that confidence. But having received this command now, these, these women, having heard the reality of the resurrection and been given the command, go tell the disciples and Peter, it's going to be just as Jesus said, what is their response to the reality? And what, what are the people's response in, in response to the news of the reality? It's disobedience and disbelief. How do they respond? They went out in astonishment, fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And did they tell everyone? And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Then there's disbelief despite Mary's report. Mary went out and told those, this is verse 10, Mary went out and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. When they heard it, they would not believe it. And at the end, he appears to two more. This is probably the two that are on the road to Emmaus, um, recorded in the Gospel of Luke. You know, two people are on the road. Jesus walks with them. His identity is concealed from them, but then he reveals it to them. And so they seem to be the ones who are telling others as well, but they did not believe them. You see this facet of unbelief and disobedience following the news of the resurrection. It's not included in your, in your scripture text if you've got a bulletin, but if you look in verse 14, afterward he appeared to the leaven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had been risen. What I want you to see here is that Christ intervenes despite our belief. Though we are faithless, yet he remains faithful. Christ comes, even though they've disobeyed, even though they haven't told the people they're supposed to, Christ comes and intervenes. He rightfully rebukes them, but he graciously condescends to them and comes to them in spite of their disbelief. And so the other thing we see from this last section here is that belief requires an encounter with the living Christ. Now, of course, Christ encountered people in a real physical sense here in the Gospels as Christ was physically present on the earth walking around. Jesus had to come to his disciples, his failing disobedient disciples physically and say, I'm here. Why didn't you listen to everybody who told, them, who told you that I was raised? But even now, our belief requires an encounter with the living Christ. This happens by his spirit. If it were up to us in and of ourselves, no one would believe. Not a single person. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man, that is everyone born in Adam, all of us, the natural man does not receive the things of the spirit of God. Why couldn't they hear? Why couldn't they understand? Why do we have the same circumstances in our lives when we tell people about Jesus and they reject him? The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. 
for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. You are alive. If you are in the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, you are alive and awake to your sin, the reality of the resurrection, the reality of Christ and his work in your life because the Spirit woke you up. And that same Spirit that woke you up is the same one that continues your growth in Christ. It doesn't just stop at initial belief. You can't muscle, if you haven't figured this out by experience already, you know, hopefully this is no spoiler alert, you can't muscle the Christian life on your own. You can't do anything on your own. It requires the Spirit working in you, not just to believe initially, but to grow continually. Not just our initial belief, but our continued growth is dependent upon the intervention of the Lord Jesus Christ by His Spirit in us. As we've looked through this passage, we've seen expectations, expectations of death by the ladies that first encountered the empty tomb. As those expectations it truly indeed were countered and then the angel declares the reality that Christ has been raised. But we also witnessed and read the response to that reality. Sadly, continual disobedience and disbelief. But we also see that God intervenes, that Christ condescends, and he comes to his disobedient, unfaithful people because he is faithful. And so though we struggle at times in our own faith, we live in light of a reality that undergirds us. It doesn't depend on the strength of my faith. It doesn't depend on the bigness of my faith. It depends on the bigness of God. It's not because we have big faith. It's because we have a big God, as someone once said. I can't remember who. And so we have a promise that God is going to complete his plan for his church. You know, despite people falling like dominoes, one after the other, in, in Mark 16, God's going to complete his plan for his church despite human failure. God's going to complete his plan for you despite your own failure. He's going to even work through your sin. It doesn't excuse your sin, but he's going to even work through it to complete his plan for you. And so do you have confidence in the resurrection and these promises of God? Our whole confidence and our entire outlook on life has to be connected to a living Christ because, as we read earlier in our assurance of pardon, look, if Christ has not been raised, as Paul said, if Christ has not been raised, this Christianity thing is a load of baloney. What are you wasting your time for if Jesus has not been raised from the dead? Your faith is in vain and preaching is in vain. But then Paul goes on to declare, but in fact, Christ has been raised. Therefore, that means your faith is not in vain because Christ is really raised from the dead. Preaching is not in vain. Christ has really been raised from the dead. He's really at work by his spirit in his people right now and when you go out these doors. Paul uses the resurrection not just to spur on our hope, but to spur on a, a change of action in our lives. He says in Colossians 3, if you've been raised with Christ, see, if Christ has really been raised, you've been raised with him. If, he's really, if you've been raised with Christ, 
Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. And so as we have sin in our lives, we recognize, well, this is incongruent with the one to whom I'm united in heaven, and it leads us to repentance. We have trials in our lives here and now. We recognize that, well, this is conforming me. I'm not saying this is easy, but this is a reality. This trial is conforming me to the image of the one who is resurrected. We have sufferings in this life. We recognize that the Spirit is working resurrection hope in us. Rejoice knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, and that gives us hope, not just in a future reality of resurrection, but of resurrection power at work in our lives right here and right now. It is intimately connected to the real resurrection of Jesus. And this reality is what puts steel in the spine of someone like Pastor Wang Yi. You may not have heard his name for a while, but he's a Chinese pastor. I'm fuzzy on the timeline. I think he perhaps started his church somewhere in 2018, an underground home church, illegal. I think last year he, he was sentenced to nine years in prison for subverting the government. This is a pastor persecuted by the Chinese government. And two days after his arrest, he had a planned letter that was written, that was distributed. It contains these words. The, the letter was titled, Faithful Disobedience. And he says, separate me from my wife and children, ruin my reputation, destroy my life and my family. The authorities are capable of doing all these things. However, no one in this world can force me to renounce my faith. No one can make me change my life. And no one can raise me from the dead. Notice the connection to the resurrection that Pastor Yi has in his faithful disobedience. You can do all these things to me, but you can't raise me from the dead. I will outlast you because Jesus outlasts you. And so I want you to remember, you too will be raised. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have asked for the forgiveness of your sins and recognize that you need his righteousness, you too will be raised. And the words that rang true for Peter and the disciples ring true for you. you know, the angel said, he's going before you to Galilee. You'll see him there just as he told you. Well, if I could put another spin on that, Jesus has gone before you to heaven. You'll see him there or here on the new heavens and new earth, whichever comes first for you, just as he told you. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for the risen Christ, who is our resurrection, who is our forerunner. And so we ask that as we struggle with obedience, as we struggle with our faith, 
Lord, we cry out, help our unbelief. And would you continue to give us the confidence that you are working in us. Enable us to pray to you more continually, more fervently, knowing that you can change us and change others around us. Give us the resurrection hope to face persecution, to face our own sin, to give it up to you and trust your work in our hearts. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.